you, Judy. That was beautiful. I couldn't help but think while she was uh, sharing that with us about people in this world and in our town, people that live right next to us who don't understand that kind of healing because they don't know the Savior. We have a mission, don't we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, and our mission starts here by being ordinary people following Jesus, loving as we go. But beyond that, we also have a mission, and that is to share the gospel around the world. This morning, we are very privileged to have with us missionaries Arthur and Anna Marie Snyder, and they are the regional directors for the Eurasia region. That uh, part of the world, Eurasia region, is huge. Um, and so I said to the first service, you know, we're, we're very fortunate. The, these, they're big cheeses in the, uh, in the world of NMI. And um, so we are so thankful um, to have them here with us. Arthur shared with us in the first service, and I believe Anna Marie's going to share in this service. So uh, you'll want to pay attention. They're going to share with us all that God is doing uh, across the Euro- Eurasia region. Come and share with us, Anna Marie. Thank you. Good morning. It is a privilege to be among you, and you must know that it is our very first Faith Promise weekend. I had to look it up at the internet what it really was all about, because I didn't have a clue, and I thought, what are they expecting of us, because we don't have Faith Promise weekends in the Netherlands, although we do have the World Evangelism offering. I also want to thank you for your hospitality as a church, Several people have shown us around, have given us meals, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, We also want to thank you for your generosity as an American church. We are in Europe, we are from the Netherlands, and I don't know if you know this expression, but there is the expression to give a Dutch treat. (laughs) Do you know what that means? (laughs) When there's a meal with a group of people, The Dutch treat is that everyone has to pay for themselves, (laughs) right? That is typically European, and it's typically Dutch. And in that sense, we can learn from the generosity of the American church, who is giving a lot of the money of the World Evangelism Funds, without which uh, the mission, as we do it now, would not be possible. And so we can learn from that aspect of your being church. And uh, Arthur and I are learning from that personally. So thank you for that. We appreciate that. Perhaps we can start with the first slide. Two years ago, all out of the blue, conversations started whether Arthur wanted to become the regional director. Now, as a regional director, you're responsible for all the missionaries in a certain world area. We have 100 missionaries in Eurasia. 50 of them are paid by the World Evangelism Fund. 50 are on a voluntary basis. We have both. As a regional director, you and also we are responsible for pushing 
the boundaries of the mission, to push the mission and to move, to help it move forward. That means that we try to encourage to open up new works in new countries. It also implies that we try to encourage local churches reaching out to their neighborhoods, becoming involved in social action. One of the ways that, it, that that is very relevant in Europe right now and in the Middle East is with regards to the many refugees that we have and that are flooding us. And our church wants to be involved in that, has to be involved in that, has to show the love of Christ to the people that are there. I was quite impressed uh, when Dave got his medals. I'm sure Dave himself was very much impressed because I heard that you didn't know that this was going to happen. And do you know what this ceremony made me think of? I had to think of the final judgment when we have to appear before the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ will ask of each one of us, how have you personally been involved in my mission in this world? What have you done? What have you done with your life in order to help the mission move forward? How have you been praying to be involved in the mission? How have you been giving to be involved in the mission? How have you been teaching your children to know about what is happening in this world and how they can personally be involved, whether as paid missionaries or whether as volunteer missionaries? How have you considered the call of God upon your lives with regards to becoming involved in the mission? Arthur and I are formal missionaries. We had a call to missions early on in our lives. But it wasn't until two years ago that the door to missions opened in such a way which we never anticipated, but which has given us a whole new, identi uh, a whole new dimension of what it is to be part of a world mission-sending church. And we can be proud of that. We can be proud that we are an international church and that we can learn from one another. Now, next to us, do you know who these people are? Yeah? J.K. and Patty Warwick. J.K. is one of the general superintendents of our church. And for these two years, he is the general superintendent that is overseeing Eurasia. Now, Arthur is, and I are responsible for the mission part of the church. And the general is important for conduct conducting district assemblies and for appointing the yeses and for seeing to the, what they call, juridical matters of the church. And three months of the year, we travel with these two people. Three months of the year. Here we are in India. 
Now, JK has said on several occasions that he thinks that Eurasia is the most challenging and the most dangerous region within our world. That is a challenge by itself. Now, what is Eurasia? Eurasia is all of Europe. It's all of the formal, formal Soviet Union. It's all of the Middle East. It's all of India. And it's all of South Asia. And South Asia is Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nepal, uh, and Sri Lanka. It's a huge region. One missionary told us when Arthur had said yes to becoming the RD, he said, Arthur, do you realize that you're now responsible for 40% of the world population? That you're responsible that they get to know Christ? We've felt that burden. We have felt that challenge. And I must confess to you that when we began two years ago, that I had a lot of doubts whether this was something from God. Sometimes you have that you sense that there's very clear guidance of God in your life, that God is opening a door. But we hadn't seen this coming. It was a complete surprise. And I must say that I had a lot of fear accepting the challenge. I had been an ordained elder within the church for several years. I'd been involved in church planting. Uh, I've helped to uh, plant two churches. And I was happy doing that. I've discovered that I'm a pioneer and I like the challenge of pioneering into new things. But one of the things of pioneering, and I've heard that as a church, you're considering a church plant, and I think that's really great. Please move ahead with that. But one of the challenges with church planting is that you need to be able to focus. You can't take on 10 responsibilities when you start a church plant. You need to focus. A church plant is your number one, your number two, your number three, your number four priority. Otherwise, the dream of dreaming a church plant will not come into reality. And I'm a person that can focus. But the problem with focusing is you're like this. And suddenly, with Arthur becoming the RD, our ministry became like this. It was much huge, much more huge than I could contain, than I could imagine, than I could, than I could handle. And so I struggled with it. I felt overwhelmed. I said, Lord, you've called me to become a pastor, and I like church planting. But I'm used to being in my own home and being involved with a small church and starting things up being very focused, and now suddenly you're pulling me out of my comfort zone into something unknown of which I don't know whether I can handle it and whether I would like to handle it. And I felt tired, I felt stressed out, and literally my feet were hurting because of the stress. 
And I still remember it was February because February is general board time. And it was our first trip to the general board in Kansas City in the United States. And I was on the airplane and then it's a long flight and I was stressed and I was thinking, how on earth are we, and especially I, how am I going to handle this? And then the Lord spoke to me. He gave this whisper. The Lord sometimes gives you a scripture verse. And he gave me this verse, and it was, he made my feet like the deer. Can you see the deers that are there? Oh, not this side. Can you see them? Can you see the steep rocks here? And you need to be a deer in order to handle those kind of situations. And the Lord spoke to me. He makes my feet like the deer. And I thought, where is this verse? We were in the airplane. Didn't have internet, so I couldn't look it up. And I thought, where is this verse? Does any of you know where that is? He made my feet like the deer. I'm not sure about that. No. <laughs> Might be, yeah. Anyone? It's in Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk. I'm not sure how you say it. Habakkuk. And I went to Habakkuk. And I went to, first, to chapter 3, verse 16. And I read... I heard my heart and I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the victory does not but, this is very well known, though the victory does not but and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. This must speak to you people. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in, the God, in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And I was so encouraged. The Lord was speaking into my situation. And I could rejoice. I didn't have the feeling I was in control. But I could rejoice. Because the God is my savior. My savior in difficult circumstances. Now the question is, who was Habakkuk and why did he write this? Habakkuk was an unknown prophet in the 7th century. His name is only mentioned in the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk lived in a complicated time, just like we do. He lived in a time where Israel felt threatened. And in order to face the threat, they tried to form allegiances with nations around them. So they tried to form an allegiance 
with Egypt, and they tried to form an allegiance with, with Assyria. And Habakkuk tries to read the times. He's confused. There are all those political tensions that are happening. And he feels overwhelmed. And he's praying to God, God, what is happening in our times? Where are you in all of this? What is happening in the world around us? And then in the beginning of chapter 3, it reads that Habakkuk is saying, Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. And I read in one of the commentaries that in the midst of years refers to times where it seems as if God is absent. Where God no longer is at work. Where it seems as if God is silent. When, where the, that he has withdrawn himself. Where there's a lukewarmness in the relationship with God. People here, you have to realize that in Europe, we live in the midst of years. God has become absent. Faith in God has been replaced by nostalgia. I don't know whether you've heard of the Messiah. Have you heard of the Messiah? Beautiful CDs, you can buy them. And Handel, as a musician, has put... um, Uh, the gospel, uh, literal verses of scripture into music. And it's beautiful. Arthur and I went to one of the performances in the Netherlands a year ago, and we were so impressed with what we were seeing because there was this huge choir that was standing there. And there was this huge live orchestra. And the whole place was packed with people. You had to buy expensive tickets to get there. But the whole place was packed. And I was so impressed because there were many Christians present, but there were also, and the majority was non-Christians. And here they were, were listening to the Bible being sung. It was beautiful. But at the same time, I felt so sad And I experienced this deep hurt inside because I had read in one of the newspaper clippings that the Messiah has become very popular in Europe. Not because of the content of what the people are singing. Not because of scripture being sung out. But because the Messiah has become part of our cultural heritage. And Christianity has moved, or the Messiah, has moved to being like a museum which you like to attend because there's something special in it from the past. To the overall majority in Europe, Christianity is no longer a reality. We still have the beautiful churches there, but they're symbols. 
their cultural heritage of our past, and we're proud of the churches, but there's no connection anymore with the living Christ. This is a beautiful church in Berlin, and we have visited it. And there were a lot of tourists visiting there as well, but not because of Jesus Christ, but because the beauty of the art. There is no longer a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior. And Habakkuk is a book in the Bible about how God works in a society that is rapidly turning away from God. A society where we can feel alone, where we're the only ones in our family that attend church where we're the only ones at work that are a Christian, where we feel isolated, where we feel like we're the exception, and where we've moved to the margin. And Habakkuk's prayer is, Lord, where are you in all of this? And God answers the prayer of Habakkuk. And God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now, you don't know the Babylonians, but Habakkuk knew their reputation. They were ruthless people. They killed, they slaughtered groups of people. They raped the women. And Habakkuk is shocked when he's hearing what God's answer is to his prayer. And he's saying, and it says, and in the book of Habakkuk, you should read it in your home, but he's saying, God, are you out of your mind? God, do you know the reputation of this group of people? Do you know their cruelty? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know about the risks involving a nation like this? And he's all confused. And with his confusion, he climbs what the Bible says, his watchtower. And he starts to pray. He confronts God with the difficult questions of his time. And then Habakkuk has an encounter with God. A personal encounter with God. We need encounters with God in order to face the times ahead of us. We need encounters with God in order to know how to move forward in the mission. We need encounters with God to know our place within the mission of God. And when I was in that airplane flying to the States, I had an encounter with God. And God asked me, why are you so afraid? 
What is it that is so overwhelming to you? And I had to confess, Lord, I'm afraid. I can't handle the situation. And the Lord answered, I can. Trust me. Trust me. And Lord, I said, but I, if I can't focus, I don't know whether I'll be successful. And the Lord said, well, that's a problem. <laughs> that sounds like pride. Success is my responsibility, not yours. You take your place in the mission. And so I had to confess my pride. As we encounter God, we can gain trust in how God is working. And even though in our own personal situations, the fig tree doesn't bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, yet we can rejoice in the Lord our God, because the Lord is our strength. Not our success, not our personal performance, not how well we do in life, in whatever area of life. The Lord is our ultimate strength. And as we travel through the region, we feel so privileged because we see this dynamic again and again and again. Because so often when we travel somewhere, we feel overwhelmed. But we've come to expect Jesus Christ at work in the situation and his face shining through within the situation. We feel so privileged because when you watch the news, there is one picture, one sight that you hear of. But when you listen to the stories of the people where you travel to, you see a different picture, a different sight. Last November, we traveled to the Middle East and we went to visit Jordan and Lebanon. Now, I don't know whether you know these missionaries. They're Kay and Lyndall Browning. They've been in the Middle East for 34 years. 34 years. They're going to retire next year. They've moved back to the States and it's their last year. Now, Kay and Lindell were like to us. They were like a mentor's couple, but they were also like a beacon. The beacon of stability in the Middle East. And we knew that they were going to retire when we would become the RD couple. And so we knew we had to look for a successor for them. But how can you replace someone who has 34 years of mission experience, who knows the language and who's done very well. There's no, I mean, we talked about it with Marty Hoskins from GMC and who was on personnel, but they didn't know whom to provide. How can you find a successor like that? So that was one problem. But another problem was, and we also felt overwhelmed by that, how can you encourage a group of people, a group of pastors that has to deal with 
problems that are so huge when you look at the news. The many refugees that are flooding into Jordan, into Lebanon. One of every four people in Lebanon is a refugee. Do you think the people of Lebanon look forward to more refugees coming in? No. It's already an overwhelming experience. They can't handle it. And we thought, we have very limited experience with volunteers, not like they do in the Middle East. How can we ever say something to a group that must feel overwhelmed, that must feel fearful because of IS and all the threats that are there? But Jesus shone through the situation. And we had meetings with the pastors. And one of the pastors of a big church, you can see him over standing over here, Khalil. We had a conversation with him, and both Lyndall and Kay and we felt that he was the right man for the right time. He's from Jordan. He can travel around in the Middle East much more easily than Westerners. He has been with the church for years. He's come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a young man within the church from difficult circumstances. And he has a church of over 500 people right now. They are reaching out as a church to refugees, to hundreds of refugees. So Khalil has become the successor, together with his wife Randa, of Lindel and Kay. But the Lord also answered this feeling of fear and bewilderment that we had about speaking to these groups of pastors. Because to our amazements, the pastors were not depressed. They were not fearful. They said, there's another side to it. And this other side is that this crisis that is happening in our world and that is expressing itself in the Middle East and that is now also entering Europe, that this crisis provides an opportunity for the gospel to break through in ways unprecedented. Muslims are coming to the Church of the Nazarene and are asking questions about Jesus Christ because they're saying, we don't understand what is happening within our own religion. We don't agree with what IS is doing. We're not happy with it. How can the words of Mohammed be turned into something violent that we see in our countries right now? What is the Bible saying about that? And people are having dreams, dreams about Jesus Christ entering in and explaining that he is the truth, the way, and the life. People are open to Christianity in a way we've never seen before. It's an open door, and the door is, is becoming more and more open as this crisis becomes bigger and bigger. But we need your prayers. We need your giving. And we need you to become part of this mission.
We need people of you to go out and help us to deal with this crisis that is growing bigger and bigger, but which the Lord can turn into an opportunity for himself. These are the group of leaders in Lebanon. There are only three churches in Lebanon. Only three. All three of them are reaching out to refugees. One small church of, say, 40, 50 people is having school for refugee children from um, Syria and from Iraq, teaching them English, helping them to write, to read, because very often these children haven't had school for two to three years. Now, for them, in order to get a chance in life, they need to be able to attend and start school. And this church, this one church, helps out in providing educational opportunity so that the children will have an opportunity later on in life. But in order to handle the crisis, we can't do that on our own. That church can't do that on our own. That district can't do that on their own. Our region can't handle it on our own. But we don't feel overwhelmed only because of the refugees. This is the country of France. This is our missionary, uh, Brian and Aaron Ketchum. Brian's father was a missionary as well. Um, I'm not sure where they went. But Brian has been a missionary in France for several years now, together with Aaron, his wife. And his wife is the daughter of Lyndall and Kay Browning. It's a small world. <laughs> and we were a lot bit, little bit fearful of, of going to France, because the history of France has been a difficult one. The church has been there for years, but the church has never been successful. They've never really grown they, they, they even thought a few years ago of closing down the, France, the, the French district because there, was so much, there were so many problems. And we thought, well, what can we expect if we go there? But then, to our amazement, there was this large group of people. The Ketchum family at the, the first row. And this is an American lady living in, in Paris. But all the others are migrant people from different nations who had moved to Paris, year, to Paris years ago. People from Haiti, there's an Haitian church. People from uh, Chad, there's a church from Chad in Africa. Other African churches, South American churches, all in Paris. And all these people, there were around 200 of them, we're together for worship and for meeting and for praising God. And it was such an encouragement. And it was as if the Lord was, was telling me, you know what, Anne-Marie, if I can't reach European people, I will work through migrant people. They're open to accept me. I can work through them as well and through them to reach out to the French people. I do it my way. Can you trust me? 
This is a beautiful spot. It's like a small paradise. It's on the Azores. I don't know whether you've heard of the Azores before, but it's a small island group um, in front of Portugal, but many hundreds of kilometers, many hundreds of miles in the Atlantic Ocean. And the Azores was a district. But when uh, Arthur started, when we started, there were around 30 people left in all of the district. 30 in one small dying church. And uh, Arthur and JK decided that it would be better to add the district to the Portuguese district and to make a new start. And it was a dying district, but it was decided that they would make a new start, one final effort to try to, to reach the people from the Acers which are from a Catholic background. And in order to do that, four people were selected. These are the Aquilars, Danilo and Emily Aquilar from the States. They're paid by the World Evangelism Fund. And these are Aaron and Fallon Theophilus. They're volunteer missionaries. Aaron is originally from India. He was a pastor there. And Fallon uh, went as a volunteer to work in a hospital in India. And that's where they met and they got married. And they have three boys by now. <laughs> and the two couples were uh, put together in order to give the Acers a fresh start. This is where they live. This is where one family lives. And the other family lives behind here. And this used to be a factory and it had been bought by the district in order to make a ministry center. And this is a young couple with new ideas, which are sometimes strange. <laughs> and they have this idea that everything should become beautiful so that the beauty will reflect something of the beauty of God. And so they've started with the houses and they've started with... Uh, 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 making, turning this chapel into something beautiful because they, this chapel is connected with a road and people travel alongside the road every day and their vision is to turn this into a center where people can become silent and where they can experience a quiet place to meet God, to ask for prayer, that this will become a community place and this, what used to be a factory, and which is a complete mess right now, so you could send one of your work and witness teams there to really do and help uh, because they, they desperately need help of work and witness teams. But they want to make this into a community center where they give cooking lessons and where they help children with homework and where people of the community can come and experience the love of Christ. And behind this factory, there's a garden, a huge garden. And they've started to change and transform the garden into an opportunity uh, to, to get a harvest and to give the harvest to people, to, to a, a children's home and to an old people's home in the neighborhood so that they can show the love of Christ in their community. 
Now, these are young and unexperienced missionaries. And they will fail unless you pray for them, unless you give, unless you will go yourself. This is the church, and they want to turn uh, part of the church into a, a coffee shop ministry. So they have much too much on their plate. But they're young people, and they can handle a lot. So um, please pray for them to handle it well. These people you know as well. Do you know them? Do you remember them? Bruce and Cinda McCallop. They're American missionaries. And Bruce is responsible for Jesus Film, for Work and Witness, and they've also become the new FSC couple. So they're the new field leaders. Uh, and uh, a lot is happening in West Met as well. It would help if you prayed against the strongholds of Catholicism, Catholicism but also of secularization. Pastor Paul, can I use one more example? The last story I would like to share with you is Nepal. Now, Nepal has been in the news quite a lot over the last few months. This was a visit that we did in January, and this is Reverend Dilly. He's the district superintendent. He used to be a professor of cultural anthropology, and he took us out to the center of Kathmandu to show different sites, different beautiful sites, uh, of the town. But even more impressed, <coughs> we were with the church, because the church in Nepal is growing. There were around 300 people visiting district assembly from all over the country. 25 people, all in all, were being ordained. <coughs> 25 people in Nepal. The money of the World Evangelism Funds helps, helps these people, helps these people to finish their studies because they don't have to pay much in order to do their studies. But Nepal is a poor country. It's really a poor country. And the Church of Nazarene is reaching out through all kinds of activities to help to break that cycle of, of poverty. It is so impressive to see and to experience that as a church, we have a holistic gospel. Now, in April, as all of you know, there was this massive earthquake in Nepal taking place. 8,000 people were killed all over the country. And this is Jörg Eich. He's our NCM coordinator for the region. Within five days, he was in Nepal to help out and to start a crisis program of relief. In July, we had a leadership meeting which also took place in Nepal. It was six weeks after the earthquake. Now, I don't know about you, but I was fearful again. I thought, I've never been to a disaster area. I don't know what to expect. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. 
But again, I was amazed. Because our church is offering practical help through NCM. This is one of the projects that we visited. The church was handing out, and it's all done by local people, but the church was handing out buckets, buckets with a filter, because the drinking water had become polluted, and so it needed to be filtered through a filtering system. And these buckets were given, were given to NCM in order to help the people in a practical way. Now, it's, just, it's not that these things are given just all over the place, but people of NCM do needs assessment in order to see which people, which villages really need it and how it can be combined with the message of Christ. This was a village that was very much affected by the earthquake as well. And it was very interesting to hear the DS. He said, when we give the people tents, we will help them for a few weeks and they will remember us for a few weeks. If we give them slums to live in, those houses of metal, they will live in there for a few years and the people will remember us as a church for a few years. But if we give them low-cost housing, where they themselves are involved in rebuilding because they help, have to help to collect stones and to put the house together, if we build the house together, then they will remember us the rest of their lives. That's the impact we want to make as a church. And right now, there's an American volunteer helping with this housing project. And we're so grateful for that. We travel all over the world. Very often we feel overwhelmed because what is happening in our region. But the reality is that God surprises us. God surprises us because the picture of Jesus Christ shines through in the areas we go to. In the areas where we think, well, how, what can we say? How, how do the people deal with this? It's there where the people are under pressure that the gospel is coming out in ways we couldn't think of. But in order to see Jesus break through, we need your prayers. We need your giving. And we need your people. Amen. Thank you, Anna Marie. That was awesome. Uh, Arthur did a tremendous job in our first service. You wouldn't know this was your first Faith Promise uh, weekend. You guys did an excellent job. Of course, we are um, part of a global church. The Nazarene Church is a global church. We have 
uh, missionaries and, and churches all over the world. Uh, when the Nazarene Church was formed um, more than 100 years ago, we were formed with missionaries already present in, in the Nazarene Church. And so I'm glad that we belong to a church that has a global mission. We, we believe God has called us. We may not all be missionaries, but we're all on a mission. And the mission is to, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We share that in a holistic way. Uh, we have educational, uh, we have schools, we have medical buildings, we have, uh, we have churches, we, we, we deal with compassionate ministry. When there's disasters in the world, uh, one of the first entities that are at these disasters is Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. So you should have a lot in your church that, that you can be um, uh, proud of in a holy way. <laughs> uh, you, you can be proud of what your church does around the world. And, and the way we support missions is through NMI giving, and we do that in two ways. Thanksgiving and Easter, we'll, we'll receive offering that, so that if you want to give a one-time gift. But then we also give through Faith Promise. And in your bulletin, somebody wave this at me so you can, I know that you got it. Okay, uh, this is a faith promise uh, card. Uh, of course, this is on top of your tithes. This is this is a a, a faith gift. It's something that you say with God helping me over the course of the next year in a weekly amount, a monthly amount, or a lump sum. You can give to support world missions. Now, our goal as a church is to raise thirty thousand uh, dollars as through faith promise. Uh, we are in the last year and probably this year as well will be a ten percent church, which means that as a church church body, you give 10% of your income for other people and other needs. That's a pretty tremendous thing. And not many churches can say that, but you, you folks have been very good about that. And so I, I, we're going to take a few moments. Is Amy here? Oh, there she is. Hi, Amy. Amy's going to come and play, and I'm just going to give you just a couple minutes to consider and then I'm going to come and we'll, we'll have the ushers come and receive your commitments. Maybe you're not ready to make a commitment. Maybe you want to pray about it. That's okay. You know, there, there's no pressure. Nobody will be contacting you or bugging you about this. This is between you and God. Uh, but, but let's take just a couple minutes and then I'll come up and the ushers will receive the commitment. Stand with me. Why don't we give our missionaries a hand? Didn't they do an outstanding job? We really appreciate you sharing with us. And Dave, I'm proud of you too. I tell you, that, that was a that was awesome. Well, they'll be with us for a few moments. If you have questions, I'm sure they'd entertain them. They can't be here too long because they got to catch another plane plane ride and go to Kansas City. I told them there's nothing in Kansas City better than that's in Marysville, so they should just stay here. But uh, I think they have some general meetings. So, uh, greet them. And, and then they'll be probably moving out pretty quick. But uh, take some time if you can and greet them. Lord, thank you for the day. Thank you for your presence. Uh, thank you for your move in this world. Lord, we're thankful that um, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so it's nothing that we've earned. It's nothing we deserve. But you give us what we don't deserve. And that's eternal life. Give us a mind. Give us a heart. Give us eyes like Jesus that allows us to see the need and move out into the world in a redemptive way. Lord, that begins with praying, and it includes giving and going. So, Lord, give us that mind. Give us that willingness. And, Lord, as you move through us, may we just celebrate the God who loves all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.